0: Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire.
1: And I can vividly remember sitting and saying, I have never heard about justice from a Christian perspective, and yet here it was such a profound theme for Isaiah, and what struck me was that it seemed in his understanding to be so deeply connected to who God is.
0: Today's conversation, God's Heart for Justice with Kristen D. Johnson, is brought to you by Western Theological Seminary. Western Sem is a graciously evangelical and ecumenical community of faith and learning in the Reformed tradition that serves students seeking to serve in all types of ministry roles within the Christian church, faith-based nonprofits, and other institutions like Christian schools. The programs at Western offer academic excellence and whole person formation through a variety of degree programs to fit your area of study and individual life circumstances. All master's level programs are provided on campus and online, making learning convenient and affordable. Check out Western SEM at westernsem.edu. So, Dr. Johnson, you've spent years thinking about writing about researching justice. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about yourself and, and where did that interest come from?
1: Thanks for asking. It it for as many years as I spent writing the book, The Justice Calling, I spent even more years before that thinking about it. And it really goes back to my devotional reading right after I'd graduated from college. I was reading the book of Isaiah. And there was so much about justice and righteousness mm. right from the beginning, woven throughout the book. And I can vividly remember sitting in my room where I do my my quiet times and saying, "I have never heard about justice mm. from a Christian perspective." Um, you know, I had become a Christian in early high school, and through all those years of church and youth group talks and involvement in Christian ministries, I really couldn't think of a place I had heard much about that. And yet here it was such a profound theme for Isaiah. And what struck me was that it seemed in his understanding to be so deeply connected to who God is.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: sort of like, I am a God who loves justice and righteousness, and how can you as my people not be embodying that in the world. And that's sort of where a lot of the righteous anger that you see in the prophets comes from is sort of this gap between who God is and who God calls his people to be, and then how they're actually living out that calling. So that seed got planted then. And I thought, I really want to understand this more and probe the Bible more. And then in my my graduate work, I was able to do a little bit looking at Augustine and justice and how he understood that. For him, justice is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. Mm. You really can't have justice without Jesus, who reorders everything that's gone wrong. So, if if one way of thinking about justice is sort of everything rightly ordered, so that it's all mm. working, working together according to God's good purposes and intentions when things get disordered, when sin enters the world, then we ultimately need Jesus to reorder both ourselves personally, so we can be in right relationship with God and ourselves. And also then that flows into how we relate to others and the structures that we create in our societies. Mm -hmm. So then I'm trying to think through, okay, how does justice understood biblically and as a Christian relate to justice as we think about it in our earthly cities and our political lives. And then one other piece, when I began to work at Hope College, I realized that so many students were coming to my office already with a passion for justice. And I thought, wow, I got all through college and never heard anything about justice. I didn't <laughs> discover that until I had graduated on my own. And now we have this really different setting and yet what I would hear from the students is like I know this is connected to my faith but I can't really put into words how mm, yeah yeah and so it was sort of the same thing that I was like okay scripture talks about justice how do we understand that these students are passionate about justice how could we help them really connect that to God and the Bible and and really honestly to give both a kind of a biblical understanding of of what God means by justice, and I'd say the deep roots that are needed to sustain that passion.
0: Hmm. Can you explore a little bit? I'm interested in the disconnect. You said reading the prophets, especially these words kept coming up, and yet you hadn't heard about those in Christian community or church. Is there a reason for that? Or or is that just kind of a blind spot in some communities? Uh, What do you think? uh
1: There are some historical reasons for that, and then there are some, I'd say more accidental reasons for that. Sure. Um, yeah. Some of I mean some of it really has to do with things like translations. You know that in the in the Greek the the root word for justice and righteousness is the same. It's the same Greek root. And so the original hearers uh, would have really understood how closely justice and righteousness were connected. Mm, And in the Hebrew scriptures, even though it's not the same word, justice and righteousness, they're so closely wedded within the biblical narratives, the words often appear together or nearby. And so this, again, I think for the original hearers, they saw these links that over time, for historical reasons, which I'll mention in a moment, and for translation reasons, we came, at least I came, and as I've talked to many others, to think, kind of justice has to do with, I guess, how we relate to others and we're seeking kind of what's right in the world, and righteousness has to do with my personal holiness, my relationship with God, and my living ethically and morally in relation to God. But biblically, righteousness is very social. For example, in, in the Old Testament, you couldn't be considered righteous unless you were rightly relating to God and others in the covenant community, and even the strangers, the sojourners, the immigrants, kind mm-hmm. of wandering through. You had to really treat every person according to God's vision uh, to be considered just and right and righteous. Part of what happened more recently within American Christianity that that helped to separate those was. And this could be its own its own long hub. Um, but um, in the 1920s, if you study American Christianity, you know that that was a time of division within both the culture and the church uh, between fundamentalists and modernists. And part of what happened is that there were these new ways of reading the Bible coming from Europe, and people were getting really nervous about some of those scholarly moves that really didn't seem to think the Bible was really the word of God. And then you also had the rise of cities and industrialization and urbanization and all these social problems. And we had been a more rural agrarian society. So Christians are trying to think through, how does our faith apply to this new setting? And those who took the lead on trying to kind of move into the cities and figure that out and really be kind of justice oriented also tended to adopt this new thinking coming out of Mm -hmm. europe that undermined some pretty essential tenets of the christian faith so those who were really trying to preserve the the convictions of the faith and the bible and its truths ended up wanting to distance themselves from those who were questioning those things and in the process sort of seeking justice so for example how do you think about sin in cities? You know, is it is it a result of our personal sinfulness? Is it a result of social ills that are manifested themselves? So it just ended up being that those who were more traditional said it's all personal sin, and those who were end up being a little more progressive said it's it's really all structural and social, and we don't individually need Jesus. And so this gap entered in that kind of held for quite some time. So justice became a bit of a bad word because Mm. it became loaded with all these other theological convictions that were not particularly Orthodox. And I think what you see in the last 20 years is a number of evangelical Christians and more traditionally, doctrinally oriented Christians saying, hey, this is actually in the Bible quite a bit. And we see injustices around us and we know God cares about this and how can we weave these back together? And so that's really encouraging. And that's part of what I saw in those Hope College students. They were reflecting that. But then we had decades where we didn't have the teaching as readily available to go with that
0: Yeah, in those yeah. circles.
1: So how to really biblically understand that calling to justice.
0: So what would you say to someone, Dr. Johnson, who says, okay, I see this in the scriptures. I see this as important and I'm starting to understand, but I, I don't know what to do or where to go to next. Like how, how does a person think about justice in kind of my daily regular life, let's mm. say I'm a teacher or or you as a professor, what what, it, what does that look like?
1: One of the interesting, I'll start with a story, um, things that happened to me as I was pondering uh, whether to enter into this research project, book project on justice, was I had three students in a row uh, when I was still teaching at Hope College say, I they were back to back to back. i I love God. I love Jesus. I'm called to seek justice and I'm going to move to Africa. Hmm. And, you know, they each had a different area of passion. You know, one was clean water and one was HIV AIDS and one was orphans. And I thought, that's so beautiful. And then simultaneously I thought, are they going to be this passionate? When they're forty with a mortgage, as they are right now, when they're eighteen and sort of the world, you know, is before them. Like, how do we make sure if this is if this is so central that it it can be central their whole life long and have that deep roots? And then, what does it look like for me, who is closer to forty and has a mortgage, to kind of weave this into my life right here and now? This can't just be something if it's this central to Scripture and to God that we. We have to go somewhere else to do Hmm. so that and my my co-author who worked for International Justice Mission was asking really similar questions. Uh, People were calling the young the youngins those days, the justice generation, this passion for justice that was emerging around trafficking and modern day slavery and clean water and all this beautiful passion. And she called it um, kind of fire firecracker passion. Right. It bursts, but fire fireworks so quickly they fall rain down, right? Yeah, and so yeah. how do you really help that be a long-term and daily passion yeah. woven in? I think part of the beauty of what Christianity and Christian schools can offer is this robust sense of calling, hmm. you know, this sense of vocation that we each have a calling from God to follow God, to live as God's children, to be disciples. And that each moment of our lives can and really ought to be offered to God to seek, as Jesus puts it, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And really now we know because of the Greek, that really could be kingdom justice and righteousness. Hmm. So what does that look like every day? Right in our neighborhoods, right in our communities, right within our families, within our daily lives and jobs. I think there's plenty to see right around us but it does take intentionality for God to kind of cultivate and give us the eyes to see. And, and part of that is that the way our society is structured right now, we tend to be a bit more isolated by demographic and social group. So we tend to run into people in our schools and neighborhoods who are a lot like us.
0: Hmm.
1: And if you're like me, that means fairly protected from some of the hardships and injustices all around us. So it's it's intentionally drawing near, even right within our communities, to organizations that have a history of connecting with those who have more obvious injustices than maybe we do or listening to stories. For Bethany, my co-author, it was amazing. She saw this billboard when she was in seminary, you know, modern day slavery is still alive. And she thought, what do I do? What do I do? And the person said, sign up for our email list. She's like, what? That can't be the answer. But she did because she didn't know what else to do. She was on her way to class. And um, and then she started getting these stories in her inbox of people suffering from modern day slavery. And God used that to shape her whole trajectory from mm. teaching church history to going to work for International Justice Mission. So it doesn't mm. have to be a big dramatic move, but it does take intentionality
0: I experience that tension all the time with students. You know, I have students like you who say, I just I want to drop out of school and move mm-hmm. somewhere. Or especially when we think about um someone right now who whose stomach is empty or who's thirsty and yet I have such an abundance, it it brings us into this tension that I experience too. Every year I teach the book of Amos.
1: Mm-hmm. And and
0: every year it's like I'm brought back into this conversation of, of am I just like have I sold out or or yeah. or is there something here? that I'm called to engage and participate in. And I've never fully resolved that tension, even just something simple, like my car has a nicer house than a lot of people around Mm -hmm. the world or my my grass drinks (laughs) more water than some people have (laughs) access to. And, And like, how can that be okay? And yet I don't know what the alternative is. It's just like let my grass die, like I, or or you know even just things like practical. We we have two vehicles because my wife works and so do I. And 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 every year I read Amos, I'm just like, am I am I one of these cows of Bashan? You know, or, or mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I wonder what what is the what is maybe the gift or the invitation of these prophets? Is it to resolve all these questions, or is it maybe to invite us into some of this wrestling with, with God and our neighbor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really beautiful reflections. Thank you for sharing that and the wrestling that I think many of us feel. I mean, my sense is from the prophets that they're reminders, right, to step back from, you know, often their complacency or more strongly their complicity in. Mm-hmm structures and ways of being that perpetuated injustice, often unknowingly, and to be reminded of who God is, and then who we're called to be. So if I link it to the biblical story, it really helps me actually make the move to concrete daily life. Yeah, Because when I look at creation, right, God creates this world of abundance and harmony and justice and shalom, and flourishing for all, And then he says to the man and the woman, you are to steward this world. And he gives them everything, right? He gives them life. He gives them every provision and he gives them this calling. And the posture that I often, if you think visually, have is sort of the man and the woman opening their hands and they're receiving everything from God. And all they have to do is offer it back, you know, with sort of open hands offered back um, to love God and love each other and love the world around them and love themselves. in the, In this moment, right with the serpent and the tree, what you see is the first moment of humans taking for themselves rather than receiving, with open hands. So if you could see my hands, I'd be going from open hands to kind mm. of curve <laughs> in on myself. And the classic um, term for that is in curvatus in se. We become inward looking and inward seeking. We become hoarders rather mm. than sharers. And so in our daily lives, how often is our posture we've received? So we've received meaningful work and an income and a garage and grass. Mm -hmm. And what's our posture with all of that, right? It's not that those are in and of themselves bad. Augustine would say, everything God created is good. It's what you do with it. It's how you offer it. It's towards what end. And so is it, are we doing that in a sort of a hoarding way, in a way that's looking out for me and my people and my kind, which is, I think, what the fall ushered in, right? This selfishness uh, that's not only myself, but also can be sort of about my people. Hmm. Or is it we've received all of this, our callings even, to be able to, to enjoy them and to be able to offer them back. So what are we doing with them? I love the work of... Uh, this research institute at the University of Virginia that's saying, you know, what does it take for a city to thrive? And they look at all these things that it really takes for a city to thrive. People need beauty. They need economic resources. They need healthcare. They need education. They need nonprofits. They need gardens. And and you, and if you look at that list, which which I can point you to, and I've talked about elsewhere, you just realize that we all have something to contribute to what it takes to that. It could be gardening and then being able to say, I love to garden and I can offer that maybe in a community in our neighborhood that doesn't have robust beauty right now, or I love art or I am... An engineer. I remember talking to one college student, it's like, I don't understand how I can seek justice as an engineer. And you think all these infrastructure realities, like, you know, even in Flint, right? Access to the infrastructure that enables clean water to enter one's home Hmm. Um, or the roads in another, in a developing country that enable one to get to and from the hospital in a timely way so that a life can be spared, right? All of these things can actually be used within a daily life and job or or unpaid calling to seek God's kingdom, justice, and righteousness. If we have sort of those open hands where we're,
0: hmm, we're yeah.
1: saying to God, you've given me this both materially and sort of vocationally, and how can I be looking out not just for me or my family, but this community, this neighborhood, this town, this city, this world, and be sharing both materially and our resources, and also of our time and our talents, in very intentional ways.
0: Hmm. Oh, amen. That's uh, I love that. That's so helpful. And I almost think sometimes, of course, there are actual needs, and it's important to be aware and and to participate in uh, needs in say the continent of Africa. But sometimes I think the the abstract or the the broader my thinking becomes. I sometimes. Forget about the actual neighborhood I'm I'm in. Do oh, you, you ever uh-huh. see that in your in your studies?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I would say there's also a a paralysis that can set in, right? When you're thinking about the needs hmm, of the true. world oh, totally. or you're reading a news story and you think, this is so tragic, and my heart is oh, yeah. really torn and I have no idea what difference I could make. So you hmm. there's really feels like nothing you can do. So it can be really paralyzing and that's part of where kind of those simple steps of drawing in, whether through an organization or something that sort of probably already exists, I'm not going to say there's no room for something new. I think we're really called to be creative and imaginative as kingdom people in uh, in all of this, but often we... Some of us could be tempted to to go right for the new thing, and yeah, um, yeah. and not not learn as much from what's already been happening right in our communities and neighborhoods. One story there that that was quite convicting to me. We through our church a few years back were able to help welcome a refugee family, and the ages of their two youngest matches match the ages of our two kids. So we we signed up to help with some driving, and then you know, tried to have them over occasionally. And I saw one of them playing soccer and I thought, Oh, I'd love to see if he can play soccer on our son's, you know, rec team. And so I got permission from the family and we signed him up and, and, you know, it's interesting once he got on the team, I mean, every other parent reached out to me, what is, does he need anything? Does he need shin guards or cleats or, you know, there was such a willingness to help, but what I realized in that moment was that I hadn't been very attentive, even in my own neighborhood. I had noticed that our soccer league wasn't as racially diverse as the community overall, and I had wondered about that. But hmm. but once this actual child was on our team and I realized there are a lot more barriers to this opportunity than I had realized. I mean, it's it was not only... You know, I had thought in terms of maybe the sign-up money, but it was also there was only one parent in that family and there was only one car and there was shift work from three to 11. Mm. You know, the priority within that family system isn't to get a six-year-old to soccer practice at that time, right? There just was mm. no logistical way to get there. And so even sort of those simple structures of how, you know, in my family, we have the, we get to work from nine to five and then we're free. And we have two cars and we have two parents. And so all those small layers that made me realize there is there's a lot more here. And, and on the one hand, we have this youth sports epidemic where from certain family backgrounds, youth sports has taken over and youth pastors can't get kids to church. And, you know, churches are like, what are we going to do? Sports has taken over. And then we have maybe whole other demographics that can't even access a sports team opportunity. And then you think, is that a kingdom issue? It doesn't feel like it. It's not a salvation issue. But is being part of a team and being part of a community and the things you learn and the sportsmanship and the camaraderie and the sacrifice, are those good things for all kids to have access to? I think most Mm -hmm. of us would say yes. And then if, if one demographic gets to have access more than another, well, what can I as a soccer mom do about that? You know, one-on-one for this one child, but even maybe more structurally. Maybe we need to just rethink a little bit um, how we're doing these youth sports and how we can come alongside and support and invite other kids who maybe don't have the same opportunities, even Mm. though it feels like the opportunity is right there. So that really was a lesson for me in how to live right here, but have my eyes a little more open.
0: All those boundaries are both discouraging just thinking about all the the many things that are under the surface but then also slightly encouraging in the sense that like you mentioned before I can't solve it you can't solve it it's going to require a community it's going to require the church dare i say to mm-hmm. to care and to and to want to take action and to reflect the heart of God in the way we order our communities
1: mm-hmm. now what what little story that that links here is that The Sunday school that we take so for granted today actually started as a Christian outreach in England when Mm -hmm. factories arose. So factories started working and more and more parents were working and kids were kind of going unattended and a little bit wild on the streets. And a Christian man said, I feel like we should do something about this. And at that time, um, you, you didn't have access to free public education, so he also realized that they're not learning. They're not really going to have an opportunity to kind of maybe even, you know, have more opportunities. So they created Sunday school on Sunday afternoons and they'd invite these kids in and they teach them to read and they'd introduce them to the Bible and to morals. And, um, and that's actually where a lot of English football clubs, what we call soccer, really? started was providing recreational opportunities for these Sunday school kids. So I love that because I just think we can open our imaginations to kind of what is the community? He saw a gap. He saw a need. And he had this sort of kingdom imagination to say, I think as the church, we can do something about this. And then he created kind of an institutional structure. So it wasn't just helping one kid, but actually like expanded all over um, and really came over to the US that there's a whole interesting Sunday school movement here that precedes a lot of our institutional churches.
0: Well, wow, I, I never and then, any...
1: yeah, and then issued in these like these soccer leagues. So I think our calling to care about soccer <laughs> and access, we could trace <laughs> it way back.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's good news. So when we're thinking about formation, which is something Christian schools are thinking a lot about, how are mm-hmm. young people being shaped? Do you think a love or hunger for justice can be taught? And if so, are there prerequisites for a passion for this biblical justice you're talking about? Hmm.
1: I absolutely think it can be taught. Part of it is how we read the Bible. And I know many Christians with stories like mine, where we grew up reading it one way through one lens, and then something happened, some teaching, uh, maybe a conference, maybe a book, maybe an encounter. And you think, oh, wow, there is, all of this is right within our scriptures. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly within Chapel and Bible classes. There is a lot of opportunity for exploring from the Bible, and I do believe the Spirit works through the Word of God. You know that that can really be um, shaping uh, to our own our own faith and our own sense of who God is and our callings in our lives. Um, and then even you know classroom assignments. I, I participated in one really creative class at Holland Christian a few years back. It was a, a, kind of a global global education class, and oh yeah, yeah. Each student was had to choose a country, and then they cho- they they did a bunch of research, and then they did picked kind of a social problem mm-hmm. within that country, and then they proposed some kind of creative structural solution to that social problem, and created kind of a TED talk. And then people like me were invited in sort of at the end to kind of listen to their TED talk and hear all their research. And it was amazing. I mean, the things I learned from them and the things that they, I think what I noticed then is that sort of in our book, we talk about things like the importance of lament when it comes Mm. to justice, because you're going to encounter deep, real, tragic injustice. And what, what do you do with that? where it seems like there's no solution and that we have a lot of biblical warrant in the Psalms and the prophets to cry out to God and say, why and how long and come rescue your people. And how could this be happening? And that God, God invites those prayers.
0: Hmm.
1: And what I saw in these students is they got there a completely different way. Like they, 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 you know, They had some connection, like they'd gone to Haiti on a family mission trip. And so they chose Haiti and then they were looking at the orphan realities in Haiti. And then they, you know, they were, they were able to come up with some kind of really creative possibility, but they also saw that it would never be enough,
0: Hmm. you know,
1: that no matter what that one idea or organization could possibly do, it wasn't enough. And, and we do need Jesus Christ to ultimately heal all this brokenness and to come again to make all things new.
0: This is crazy. I don't think, Dr. Johnson, I don't think I've ever really connected the essential piece of lament when considering justice because you're so right that so often when we, you know, if we were to ask God, what do you care about? And we were to be shaped by God's heart, we'd probably be over. I mean, we would be overwhelmed Mm. because there is such brokenness in the world. And instead of my initial responses, okay, how can we fix this? How can we make this right? You're so right in that the Bible invites us to lament as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost a it's almost a, a, an invitation to take seriously in the depth of, of the, the brokenness. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've talked about lament. You've talked about calling. What are some other major themes in your book that you explored?
1: Well, interestingly, we wanted to really walk through the biblical story and show how deep God's heart for justice and righteousness is all throughout scripture from the beginning of creation all the way through to the end of revelation where we anticipate Jesus Christ's return and how woven into that all the way along is also God's calling on us so our first invitation is to really be immersed in the biblical story our second invitation is to sabbath
0: hmm
1: and I think that's important because, again, as you just said, so often when we encounter injustice, either injustice in the world or in our community, and we want to do something, and I love that, but it's also important to recognize that that rushing in sometimes causes more harm than good. So hmm. how can we make sure that our vision for justice is really shaped by God's vision for the world and for justice. And how can we remember that though we are called to act, and I really believe all Christians are called to this as part of our discipleship, our action only takes shape and place within God's primary action in Jesus Christ. Like God is the redeeming God, and the most essential work has already been done in Jesus Christ. So Sabbath is sort of this, this call to step back, And make sure that through our weekly worship and our engagement with scripture and our rest, we are being given the eyes to see the world as God would have us see it
0: Mm. and kind
1: of submit our sense of justice and righteousness to God's. And also to make sure that we don't ever think we're the heroes or saviors in the story because we already have a savior in Jesus Christ. And what we're called to is to participate in his ongoing work of redemption in the world.
0: In your book, The Justice Calling, you, the the subtitle, you have the word perseverance in there. Why is perseverance so central to the work of justice?
1: Mm -hmm. Great question. You know, it's funny, we had to fight to get that word in there. It was originally going to be more (laughs) prominent in the title. And um, and we kind of fought to keep it in there because we thought it was so central. And then I kind of laughed to myself because not too long after our book came out, a book called Grit came out, and it became this huge kind of New York Times bestseller. And it's called The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is sort of the subtitle. Oh. Which is, it's more of a kind of a secular look at what makes people stick with things over the long haul, um, and you know, trying to kind of instill grit um, in others, but. But I do think perseverance, whether from a kind of a secular notion or a biblical notion is really important. I talked earlier about that firecracker passion that explodes but doesn't last. And we really don't believe that's what God calls us to. Hmm. And we've seen, you know, you hear the stories of, you know, the short-term engagement, um, whether it's, you know... The complexities of the short-term mission trip where you're in and out without an ongoing relationship or some of the harms that have been done uh, in the name of Christianity by sort of this sort of passion that's not really shaped and formed um, and able to sustain for the long haul. So if this is something that God really calls us to, and and based on the biblical story, it, it does seem that there's no other option, we were trying to say this is central This is central to our identity as God's holy people, that we've thought about sanctification often more as sort of individual, how we are becoming more holy personally in recent years. But for God, holy is always a plural. God's people are called to be holy and set apart. And what are we called to be set apart by? Well, God himself was set apart from the other gods around him at that time by his steadfast love, his chesed love, by his commitment to justice and righteousness. Hmm. And so if we're called to be holy as God is holy, maybe that's our calling as God's people, to be set apart by love, by justice, by righteousness, by, by actively seeking these things in the world. And so they're not meant to be a one-time passion. They're actually meant to be woven into the fabric of who we are as God's people but it's hard work, right? It's hard to really sustain that um, because of the realities of injustice, because these problems seem so intractable, because it's easier <laughs> to seek comfort and kind of close our eyes to the hardships around us. So mm. so what is it going to take to really live into this biblical calling to be a people whose love of God and neighbor really attends to every layer of our of our neighbors and communities lives it's going to be long hard work and so we need these we need ultimately the sustaining grace of god made known through the spirit and in jesus christ and we need each other in the family of god and we need worship and we need sabbath and we need lament and these you know some of these god-given practices that can sustain us over our whole lives
0: Dr. Johnson, I'm so grateful for your perspective, for the work you've done, and the way you're influencing your communities at Western and at Hope, and we're just grateful that you're able to spend a little bit of time with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
0: If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.